The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, June 28th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And I'm going to take it easy on you guys. I'm going to go easy on the Brexit today because there's a lot I could lay on you. I've listened to, I'm not kidding, 22 BBC podcasts on Brexit. A couple non-BBC ones too. But you know, without the official imprimatur of the Beeb, I wonder about them. So I won't be taking you inside the Labor Party's no-confidence vote that is working itself out. I could lay on you all of that debate. Instead, I will just give you this snippet of conversation captured by the BBC to protesters outside the no-confidence vote meeting. Note the civility and discourse of what in America would be a screaming Bernie bro and maybe a dude wearing army fatigues. People like you who, who come along here and think, oh, I'm, uh, I'm a socialist. You're not. You're a liberal democrat. You're a, a, a left-leaning, conser- small-c conservative. You're, you're by no means anything to do with the people, Jeremy Corbyn, the people at this march, and what, they, what they're here for, what they stand for, and what they represent. You're in the wrong place. I, I would leave if I were you. It's, you're not going to get anywhere today. Well, I think the gentleman's approach just, just meant we left the European Union. It's that kind of politics that lost us the Remain campaign. The kind of politics where a Labour Party can't communicate. Several thousand month. people here and a snap support show of support to say that they want Jeremy Corbyn as leader because they believe, we believe, that he's the man for the job. You're the you're single lone voice here walking around with your resign placard and you know most people are ignoring you and walking away from you because you, you and the, the right wing of the party is not what we want to hear. It's not what Labour wants. A couple of hundred people on a square is not the same as 65 million people in Britain. But lest you think every Brit is preternaturally articulate, consider this from anti-Corbyn Labour MP Margaret Hodge. And if we're to have a Labour government which is so crucial at this critical time of the country when our people will feel the brunt of the changes that come with breakfast. Actually, we have- She said breakfast. I- I'm pretty sure she said breakfast. Let's play it back. The changes that come with breakfast. Yeah, that was breakfast. I just want to say they're not perfect. Oh, that's right. They're not perfect. They voted to leave. I will also help you in this podcast by not giving you so much information, but I will define a Britishism. And that word is deselection. Maybe you'll be hearing about this. Jeremy Corbyn was trounced with this overwhelming vote of no confidence. 40 had confidence. 176 had no confidence. So Corbyn has turned around and said, deselection is in play for his disloyal overwhelming majority. This is not a recall. It's more like a primary challenge. He's saying that the voters of labor want me, Jeremy Corbyn. So let's replace the MPs, the disloyal MPs, those few, those unhappy few with real labor party members. And that's what deselection means. Oh, also, I will not be conveying to you many of the words said in the European Parliament. I could could play a lot of them. I'll just play, in fact, one clip. This is from the former prime minister of Belgium, a country about the size of Belgium, which was occupied by Germany during World War II. And the former prime minister of Belgium compared Brexit campaigners with, oh, you guessed it. What makes it so hard for me, and I think also for the other group's leader and for everybody here in this house, is the way it succeeded. The absolute negative campaign The posters of Mr. Farage showing refugees like in Nazi propaganda. So you are lucky you are spared. 
You have been spared most Brexit coverage, though you might not have been spared. Your 401k might have gone down by a few hundred bucks unless you were invested heavily in Barclays. Then it went down by 30%. On the show today, the spiel is not exactly about the Brexit, but it was inspired by Brexit. You know, it was also a little inspired by the Mets game. My mind tends to wander when Noah Syndergaard blows a lead. But first, she's a writer, an editor, a former publicist, a famous memoirist, and now a novelist, paperback novelist, in fact, the charming and clever Sloane Crosley. Sloan Crosley is the author of The Clasp, new in paperback today. To celebrate this development, I have brought The Clasp in hardcover. But I have also brought Sloan Crosley here with me. That's more impressive than a damn paperback version of the book. And I could say that luckily for us, Sloan herself is not in paperback. Hello, Sloan. Hello. How are I'm you? happy to be here in the flesh. Did you want to write a novel because your short stories were so good? You said, I can do this. Or did you want to write a novel because someone said, now's the time to write a novel after two collections of short stories? Well, the first half of that question sounds like my mom wrote it. So, uh-huh. so thank you. Um, no, after the essays. Oh, um, sorry, essays. It's okay. Oh, I mean, it's actually, a lot of times people say short stories and I, I don't mind. I mean, it's I not what they are. I think being, well, like think of it as fiction and Well, you think of, right, like you yeah. think of a, a, a giant thesis and then, you know, some points that prove that thesis, which yeah. actually all of the essays have, but it's hidden in storytelling. Yeah. So that's... Well, there's the also confusion. points of a- antithesis. There's a whole yeah. Hegelian thing going on in right. uh, the cake one. Yeah. The, cake, the cake one. <laughs> no, I mean, I'd always wanted to write a novel. I wrote a fairly atrocious novel, which, <laughs> hello, listeners, is not the one that <laughs> I'm here for today. <laughs> That's not out in paperback. <laughs> That's not out in paperback. Well, it's actually, not even only, bound. It only exists on it paper. It only exists on paper. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Um, oh, that is funny. That's like a cycle of writing. Like when yeah. it's really bad, it's on paper. When it's pretty good, it's in hardcover. When it's really good, it gets to be on right. paper again. Like how babies and old men are bald. Exactly. Exactly. When it's a cycle really of life. When you're really successful at life, you, still, you get to crap on <laughs> yourself in a diaper. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, that, yeah. that is just – that's beautiful. Um, but no, so I always really wanted to do it. And I wrote this fairly atrocious novel uh, when I was younger, when I was 22, 23. And then I sort of fell backwards into writing nonfiction into a nonfiction career. So I it was like a trust exercise. Yeah. It was with the Village Voice, which is <laughs> not to be trusted not anymore, yeah. <laughs> since, it, since it done got bought. And so then I wrote for um, The Times and places like that. And then I had the two collections of essays. This is not actually the perfect chronology of what happened, but uh, I won't bore you with it. But I always wanted to write fiction, always loved fiction. And then when I worked at Random House, I was largely a publicist for fiction uh, or narrative nonfiction and very few just journalism books. This was sort of a return to that. Yeah. Um, not so much because I thought it was the logical next step, even though it probably looks like that from the outside. Well, here's why. I think that if there was the Venn diagram of the clasp and I was told there'd be cake, I guess you could say that they should be further apart. The overlap maybe shouldn't be that huge because this thing, this is just you done gone made up the story of the clasp, whereas the uh, cake and number, as uh, the Sloan Crosley fans call them by shorthand, whereas those are, you know, real essays. But the major thing that you're doing, I think, 
is observing about life. And so in the collection of essays, things would happen to you, actual things, but then you're riffing on them, you're analogizing, it was like, or I looked like, or I felt like. These are all concocted from your mind. And whereas in the book, things would happen to your characters, and while they were fake things, it's not the thing that's so important. It's the description of the thing. It's the analogy of the thing. It's like talking about, you know, how orgasmic old women get over a shampooing, for instance. And both of those phrases... (laughs) I mean, that phrase could be in either book, and that's the joy of the book. Well, thank you. I mean, I think that basically the tone is similar in the, in the two books. But the challenge with the class was I can't give my exact tone to all of these characters because then they'll all sound alike. So there are times when, you know, you don't realize the luxury of nonfiction until you write a novel because – With nonfiction, the most common vowel is I, right? Mm -hmm. So if you observe anything that you find astute or funny or heartwarming or or true, you can just pop it in there. And there's not a filtering system except for the structure of the essay that you don't want to be bloated and you want it to have a point. And then with fiction, it's possible that I would notice the way a waiter was walking into a restaurant, but that my character in that situation would not. So it's a matter of reining it in. Sometimes you have to make characters dumber than yourself. But what do you have to do if the character is smarter than yourself? Because once the character is smart, once a character is smarter than yourself, if you are able to write that and convey it, you've become that smart. Hmm. I don't know if that's true because the thing is you have the immediacy effect of the character whereas you can spend all the time you want making that character an expert in Russian literature Um, and they can just sort of rattle things off their tongues uh, that you've spent hours and hours in the library researching. So, no, but the details you're talking about in both forms, in narrative nonfiction and fiction and poetry, it doesn't even really matter, in painting, anything – it should be that the more detailed and the more specific that you get about something, the less it applies to someone, the less chance you have of it relating to more than one person who's in your reading audience. Uh, and somehow it works in reverse, where yeah. the less general you are and the more you try to reach into your own experience, or in the case of the class-based character's experience, the more people do tend to relate to it. Yeah. Some of your characters certainly can have certain insights that you might have. They're not as quick or they're not as gimlet-eyed as you or they're not as whatever tone you're going to convey. Mm -hmm. Yet if you have these insights, if you're – you know you're in the middle of a novel and you say to yourself, you know, homeless people should be sponsored by Sharpies, right? Right. That's going to find its way – somewhere in the novel. One of the characters will be able to have such a funny riff and insight. The woman who says that is a terrible person. (laughs) Yes. But when you do see the world, when you, Sloane, see the world in a certain way, all the ways you have of seeing the world somehow make their way into the observation of one character or another. Well, that's true. I mean, that's what's strange when people um, both um, I was told there'd be cake and how did you get this number? Cake people, and number. Cake mm-hmm. and number. Yes, we can we can abbreviate them. But people tend to ask, uh, you know, who's mad at me? That seems to be the first question at readings. You know, who's mad at me? Or was this person upset by, you know, you writing about them? Oh. And actually, really around when both of them came out, it was right on the heels of the J.T. Leroy scandal, of A Million Little Pieces, of Augustine Burroughs. And so everyone assumes that, you know, there's someone who's outraged somewhere. And because the essays are shorter, there's less outrage because they just, they, they end. I'm not spending, you know, 300 pages 
you know, focusing on one person and tearing them, tearing them apart. Yeah. But anyway, this all leads to um, the fact that with this novel, uh, people seem to not ask, which I take as a, a weird sort of silent compliment <laughs> that uh, no one seems to think that any of these characters are actually me or actually people that I know. But at the same time, they are, as you say, derived from living in the world. So I can't actually 100% go around saying that they're not based on anyone. But I want to go back to when people ask you, you know, who are you skewering or who's mm-hmm. mad at you? Don't you think, and they're not asking you about this work of fiction, don't you think that has more to do with some people, the people who are, are enforcing codes, their lack of understanding of what nonfiction should be and maybe even what fiction should be? Like I think – I will just say this. Hmm. I think the pieces, the million little pieces do. Mm-hmm. I think James Fry – was pulling one over and committed an ethical misdeed. Whereas I think that the same amount of scrutiny that was brought to some Sedaris pieces is absolutely ridiculous. And it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter if some of the things don't happen exactly as they said they happen. Getting something from writing has very little to do with ombudsmaning for the truth. Well, a couple of things. One is David Sedaris does not purport to write memoir. That should be enough to just and the conversation, except for the fact that memoir is my story, right? That's what that means. And so the issue with the James Fry thing is, and it was that it was a total witch hunt. I mean, that was a huge, I mean, there were, you know, six page, six pages, an exaggeration. See, I'm doing it right now. Um, But six page spreads. I'm just going to lean into it in Us Weekly and things of this nature. And the issue is, is that he was a witch. Yeah. But but it doesn't stop it from being a witch hunt where David Sedaris never really has that scrutiny. And he's also, his goal is different. And his goal, as you're saying, I mean, is, is entertainment. And the question people have is, you know, what's at someone's expense and what's not? Knowing a writer is a bit like having a fox in the hen house. Um, but then as the, as the fox, you, you need to have a bit of responsibility and you know what's on the up and up. I mean, Mary Carr wrote a book called The Liar's Club. Nobody's going after her, you know, because I'm sure there's tons of stuff. You know, if I hired a private investigator and went into it and said, okay, well, this is a lie and that's a lie. It doesn't matter because of the artistry and of what was achieved doing it. And she wasn't self-aggrandizing. I think that's the, the point at the end, maybe, that's taken me a while to get to, which is Sedaris is certainly not doing that. And any of the people that we sort of approve of have a bit of humility to their to their writing. I have talked to authors and uh, screenwriters who are in the situation where they very much base a fictional character on someone real. Oftentimes, the character of dad is their dad in their minds. Right. And I've talked to these guys and they said, so what happened when you asked your dad? He said, dad, you know, what'd you think of the characterization? And uh, the father's like, oh, that guy's funny. He's like, oh, yeah. Well, he's supposed to be you. Oh, I don't see it at all. They don't see it. <laughs> they see it or they see it where it's not there. I've had yeah. that happen. I yeah. had that happen in um, one of the – one essay I wrote once. I described a, a girl who was like the queen bee of my high school, though I called her the queen ladybug because she was just so sweet. And she just sort of drew everyone to her. And she was the kind of person that assumed that if you weren't at a party, you were at a better party across town. You know, not that you weren't invited and sitting at home eating cheese doodles and, you know, listening to something awful like, you know, toe the wet sprocket or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> hypothetically. Great, great, great cover of Tangerine. Right. Exactly. Anyway. <laughs> sure. Um, but uh, and I got to know her a little bit later in life, in real life, and she said, oh, who is that? I don't remember who that is. And I thought, oh, gosh, that's really – this is a really hard question to answer um, because it's you. (laughs) But, yeah, I I always think it's better to ask for 
for the most part, forgiveness rather than permission. Because then you couldn't write anything, really. If you're just so worried, there's a little bit of relinquishing of the very nature of being a writer if you ask for too much permission to write about people. But then, you know, it's the Spider-Man thing. You have a lot of responsibility once you have that. Yeah, it is true about permission and forgiveness. Exception to that, private email server if you're Secretary of State. Yes. Maybe want to get permission <laughs> if down the road. Right. I don't think, I mean, we can Trump. take certain things out of un, out from underneath this umbrella. Murder, also one. Yeah. Well, take permission it out. to murder, then you're Jack of Morgan. <laughs> and then you're and it's a whole 60 Minutes piece. Exactly. Yeah. Um, do you think that it's harder to wrest comedy from a really likable character than an unlikable character. And I will, I will say this. You are a likable character and you are Thanks. funny. Thank you. Okay. And I mean in real life and the persona in your book. But in these – in this book, the characters are, once you get to know them in different ways, you flesh out their sympathy. And yet, mm-hmm. especially in the beginning, it, it seems like a horrible person is the source of great comedy on sitcoms, in novels. Maybe it's just easy, but it does seem that horribleness in comedy tend to trend more than lovability in comedy. It's, it's low-hanging fruit. What's interesting to me is I guess there are two kinds of, of comedy, specifically in the clasp. I mean, well, three. One is um, there's, you know, physical comedy. There's, you know, Pratt Falls. There's a guy who tries to scale a wall at some point and it basically falls, you know, there's uh, or gets his apartment broken into, you know, it's actual things you can see. And then the other is, yes, making light of horrible people. And then the third, and then I'll, I'll say something else, but the third is sort of um, this in-between spot where you have a nice person who gradually who is actually doing very much for other people. Um, she's sort of beholden to her boss. She's beholden to her friends. She feels guilty about her friends. She tries to do the right thing. But then, you know, she has these little moments that come out where she's sick of being the the camp counselor of any in any group. And she has little comments where hopefully you support her by them because you're on her side for having, you know, toiled away for so long. So there's there's the nice person who's hit hit the wall. But you can also identify um, that with them. That, that the that's person, an identifiable the character. The person driven crazy, Steve right. Martin in planes, trains, and automobiles. Right, exactly. And yeah, yeah. Exactly. They have their moment. Yeah. All right. The clasp, we've discussed nothing of the structure or the plot. <laughs> what is it about? I hope, yeah, it's basically, <laughs> so the assigned reading is uh, a short story by Guy de Montpassant. <laughs> <laughs> Read that first. That is available for free online. Yes, you can get it anywhere. It's short. Once you read that short story, even if you don't, you'll be oriented within the context of the book. Sloane Crosley is the author of I Was Told There'd Be Cake, which is a Thurber Prize finalist. I'd like to note that at the time, no Thurber Prize had ever gone to a woman. That has since been corrected. Fine. Noted. She also wrote How Did You Get This Number? And the novel is The Clasp. Thanks, Sloane. Thank you. And now the spiel, sterling, silver, linings. The housing meltdown. You remember that one? When a band of elites operating within the lax framework set up by irresponsible politicians jeopardize the well-being of the masses. Well, this time around with Brexit, the masses operating within a lax framework set up by irresponsible politicians jeopardize the economic well-being of a band of elites. The banker said, don't do it. 
The bankers said it won't work out. The people said, screw you, we're going to do it. And guess what? It didn't work out. Woohoo, revenge. So the whole Brexit thing, it's like the college co-ed who gets cheated on by her boyfriend and in return hooks up with his fraternity brother to show him. And the fraternity brother is neither a careful nor skilled lover, but he does have a neon Labatt sign in his room. So that's something. And afterwards, she at least causes a row between the two guys. Sorry, dude. I thought you said she was your ex. No, we're on a break. Well, it's not exactly a break. Somewhere between a break and an ex. Shit's like a Brex. And then you come along and Brexit. Sorry, dude. That's what confused me. I just thought she was, you know, just your ex. No, man. And you're always checking her out. You always check out all the other guys' exes. You check out Turk's ex, and you check out Fitzy's ex, and you check out Schwanzbone's ex, and you check out the Vark's ex. That's what you do. You're the checker of exes. Hell, you're like, you're like the chancellor of the exchequer. Speaking to the BBC, George Osborne, chancellor of the exchequer, had this to say. Well, we are absolutely going to have to provide fiscal security to people. In other words, we're going to have to show the country and the world that the government can live within its means. That's what I've been doing for the last six or seven years. Just to translate. Just well, that, that means, yeah, absolutely. Tax rises, spending cuts. Yes, absolutely. No, you idiot. Have you considered that it's possible that not only was Brexit wrong, but that austerity is wrong? That austerity created the conditions where Brexit seemed appealing. Have you learned nothing? I don't know. You know what? Maybe it's I, me, Mike. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm not wrong. But for the sake of the next sentence, let's just say maybe I'm wrong. The markets came back today. Or it could just be the dead cat bounce. You've not heard of the dead cat bounce? It's the trading notion that even bottoming out markets can have a momentary uptick because even a dead cat bounces. We have confirmed that. Here now, the evidence of our experimentation. But I do find the silver lining. And not just because silver, along with all other precious metals, have risen post-Brexit, even as the pound sterling has declined. That is, until... (coughs) Mary made that sound effect, and damn it, she's going to play it. But I did find the silver lining. In fact, the entire episode makes me, on the whole, more cheerful than Dorr. The masses made a massive mistake. Anger at the elites, disaffected common folk, actual bona fide expression of democracy. These all happen. They're all supposed to be good things if you're a small D Democrat. But I know the dangers of democracy or what was once called mob rule. Democracy, it is true, is less bad than all other forms of government, but it does have particular specific downsides. I've read a little Plato. He was no huge fan of democracy. He likened a democratic populace to the crew on a ship. Quote, the crew are all quarreling with each other about how to navigate the ship each thinking he ought to be at the helm. They have never learned the art of navigation and cannot say anyone ever taught it to them or that they spent any time studying it. Indeed, they say it can't be taught and are ready to murder anyone who says it can. Sound familiar? When government doesn't work, we usually think the problem is we haven't given the people what they want. This is the Brexit referendum. This is all referenda, giving the people what they want. That's the solution that democracy offers, right? But Plato thought giving the people what they want wasn't democracy's solution. It was its flaw. Or you could just follow your gut. Here's a woman who supported Brexit who strangely has an American accent. 
I believe in this very strongly, in making choices out of what feels right. And uh, a lot of people thought I was crazy, but it felt right to me. And it felt that I had completed my obligation and was ready for other things. No, I'm sorry. That was Shelley Long on Leaving Cheers. Or as we'll one day call it, Brexit 87. I do not support any non-democratic forms of government, but I find that good government often relies not on how much democracy you can give, but on how much you can withhold. Just as a good piece of music relies on rests, or a good actor acts in the pauses, or a good baker is judicious with his use of sugar, making the icing on the cake just the icing on the cake. More judicious democracy creates stability and better policies. What are constitutional guarantees if not a thwarting of mob rule? What's six years in the Senate, if not exactly the same? Maybe this Brexit vote was ill-considered because it was a majority vote. Such a huge decision. Maybe two-thirds would be the smarter way to have gone, like how a civil case depends on preponderance of the evidence. But if we're talking about taking away someone's freedom, a criminal case, that's beyond a reasonable doubt. But the main silver lining that I find is that it should be, it can be, a valuable lesson to U.S. voters and one with only small costs. It's not nothing. The U.S. has some skin in the game, but no bone, no marrow. This could show us that a knee-jerk hatred of elites is as dumb as blind obedience to them. In fact, it is true that having an advanced degree doesn't make you intelligent and that some unwise people have advanced degrees, but not having a degree doesn't automatically confer street smarts or common sense upon you. The scarecrow thought he needed a PhD certificate to show off his smarts. Many Brits apparently believe that a PhD in economics shows that you are unwise. This is obverse scarecrowism, and it makes no sense if you only had a brain. To learn a lesson, you usually have to go through a calamity. We don't want to have another Vietnam. We don't want to have another housing bubble. We don't want to have another True Detective season two. Maybe one day, though, we'll be able to say, oh, yeah, remember Brexit. The Brits tried that with Brexit. Sure, that sounds good, but that's what they said about Brexit. And our children will say, Daddy, what is this Brexit of which you speak? And you'll reply, it was a sitcom in the 80s. Deselection, Norm, Boris Johnson, Frazier, Lilith, Plato, nothing, nothing going on there, no recognition. What were we talking about again? Oh, yeah, the days before the market crashed, the British left Europe, and Iceland went on to win three World Cups. Oh, wait, look out, son. <coughs> yeah, you're right. It does just kind of lie there. Weird expression. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson points out that if the cat really were dead, it wouldn't be meowing. Executive producer of Slate Podcast, Steve Lichtai, is just shouting, Theater of the Mind, Mary! Theater of the Mind! Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, is running a network that is riding high on good times, or is Panoply just experiencing the maimed marsupial meandering? The gist, we're doing pretty well. Or is it just the crippled caribou carom? Oomperu depperu dupperu, and thanks for listening. 